Hey guys, my name's Maddie Flint. If you don't already know me, if you do, welcome back. You're listening to my podcast, The Essentials, and this episode is going to be about art history. I may do more like this in the future, but as of today, the topic is going to be neoclassicism in Europe and the United States. And I'm getting all this information from my art history textbook. This is volume two, the fifth edition by Marilyn Stockstead and Michael W. Cothran. And this is the textbook I needed for my art history class, Survey of Art in the Western World. And I'm just going to be reading straight from the book. So I hope that you guys enjoy the information. It's pretty interesting. I hope you feel enlightened afterwards. So I'm just going to begin by saying that neoclassicism as a movement was relatively similar throughout Britain and France and all the surrounding areas there. But once it got into America, it kind of signified something else, which I will get to. But but it was a little different in the United States because there was no monarchy or aristocracy or anybody like that that these artworks would glorify in any way. So neoclassicism in the U.S. actually was empowering to the middle class because at the time, everybody there was middle class, upper middle, lower middle, somewhere around there, working class. I'll just put it under that. And they weren't buying all this extravagant neoclassical artwork that would glorify kings and show how much power their absolute rulers had. So it's interesting to see the differences. So this is chapter 30, page 917. You don't really need to know that, but I just felt like reading it out loud. Um, So neoclassicism and early romanticism in Britain. And I'm not really going to go into romanticism because that was sort of a competing art movement to neoclassicism because neoclassicism signified enlightenment and logical thinking and solid fact and Roman history and and just almost like STEM versus art and music majors, where on the contrary, romantic artists played up the meaning behind something, kind of abstract thought. It celebrates the individual and the subjective, whereas neoclassicism celebrates the universal and the rational. So Britain first got its taste of Enlightenment thinking from British tourists and artists in Italy who became leading supporters of early neoclassicism, partly because of their taste in revival styles at home. But the classical revival in Britain had a slightly different focus from what we saw in Rome. (laughs) Um, While Roman neoclassicism looked to the past in order to revive a sense of moral and civic virtue, Many later 18th century British artists harnessed the concept of civic virtue to patriotism to create more romantic works of art that were dedicated specifically to the British nation. So it was really ancient Greece and ancient Rome that were influencing this whole Enlightenment movement. Um, They provided impeccable pedigrees for 18th century British buildings, utensils, pottery, and even clothing fashions. Women could be seen wearing white muslin gowns, and men curled their hair forward in an imitation of classical statues. And by the 1720s, many professional architects and wealthy philosophers in Britain would stand against what they viewed as the immoral extravagance of the Italian Baroque. They actually advocated a return for the simplicity of classically inspired architecture. This led to the design of the Chiswick House in 1724. Its owner, Richard Boyle, the third Earl of Burlington, who lived from 1695 to 1753. 
The design was actually inspired by Italian designer Palladio's Country Wheeler Rotonda. So there are quite a few architectural similarities between the Chiswick House and ancient Roman classical styled buildings. The plan shares the bilateral symmetry of Palladio's Wheeler, although the central core is octagonal rather than round, and there are only two entrances. The main entrance is flanked here by matching staircases and it has a Roman temple front, an imposing entrance for the Earl. Chiswick's elevation is characteristically Palladian, with a main floor resting on a basement and tall rectangular windows with triangular pediments. So the pediments are a very Greek thing that the Romans also were influenced by, and now the British are doing it. So this house contained very ornate interior design as well as its outside grounds, um, the latter in a style that became known throughout Europe as the English Landscape Garden, and landscape architecture would actually flourish in England. The ideal English garden would mimic the compositional views of pictures by French landscape painter Claude Lorraine, whose paintings were popular in England. They were very picturesque views. They were intentionally contrived to look natural and unkempt. So it's this mix of rustic bridges and and very naturally growing plants and everything that were actually carefully designed and manicured. And those things were offset by classically inspired temples, copies of antique statues, artificial grottos, and rural cottages. And then as enlightenment ideas started to come in hand in hand with the industrialization of Britain, this created a large and affluent middle class with a disposable income to purchase smaller and less formal paintings such as landscapes and genre scenes as well as prints. Relatively inexpensive printed versions of paintings could also be sold to large numbers of people. So while the royalty was getting super expensive stuff, the middle class was also able to start purchasing paintings and prints. In portraiture, artist Sir Joshua Reynolds from 1723 to 1792 was a generation younger than another famous British painter, Hogarth, and he represented the mainstream of British art at the end of the century. After studying Renaissance art in Italy, Reynolds settled in London in 1753 where he worked vigorously to educate artists and patrons to appreciate classically inspired history painting. In 1768, he was appointed to be the first president of the Royal Academy, and he set out a lot of theories on art in great detail in his 15 discourses to the Royal Academy. And he argued that artists should follow rules derived from studying the great masters of the past, especially those who worked in the classical tradition. He claimed that the ideal image communicated universal truths and that artists should avoid representations based solely on observation, as these paintings merely communicated based reality. And that is what leads to Impressionism, actually. So a painting that really highlights this whole movement of industrialization, science, the enlightenment, everything, is called An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump by Joseph Wright of Derby, 1734 to 1797. It shows an enlightenment fascination with the drama and romance of science in his depiction. Wright set up his studio during the first wave of the Industrial Revolution, and many of his patrons were self-made wealthy industrial entrepreneurs. He belonged to the Lunar Society, a group of industrialists, including merchants, traders, and progressive aristocrats who met monthly in or near Birmingham to exchange ideas about science and technology. And just to give a little description of what that painting is, because this is just audio, I wish it was a visual too, maybe that can happen someday, but 
Um, the background behind that painting is that it depicts a natural philosopher recreating Robert Boyle's air pump experiments where a bird is deprived of air. The experiment is conducted before a group of onlookers. They show a variety of reactions, but for most of the audience, their scientific curiosity overcomes concern for the bird. The central figure looks out of the picture, inviting the viewer's participation into the experiment. And aside from that of the children's reaction, little sympathy is directed towards the bird. And it is one of the only candlelit scenes that Wright painted during the 1760s. So now that the British are starting to open their eyes to science and new ideas and and welcome in all of the good things that came along with industrialization, although most colleges will paint industrialization and manufacturing as a very dark and terrible time for the planet Earth, it actually did give way to scientific and technological advancements as well as a bigger market industry. Everything started to pick up a little bit more while the working conditions were pretty terrible for most people in the time. So now we're moving to France. This is late 18th century. Um, the Rococo period, which was categorized as this playful and leisurely painting style that just depicted people having a great time. It was mostly the wealthy aristocrats in France and anybody else who had the leisure time to not have to work their lives away. They were just raising the taxes on the middle class and getting all this expensive and playful and fun-loving artwork that they didn't have to do anything for. So that whole movement, that was replaced by enlightenment ideas and by the gathering storm clouds of revolution. People were sick of the aristocracy and they're gonna revolt. French art moved increasingly toward neoclassicism as French architects held closer to Roman proportions and sensibility, while painters and sculptors increasingly embraced didactic presentations in sober classical style. So while there was still kind of a majority of French painters who were focusing on the wealthy and, and painting all of these Rococo-styled artworks and everything, there were some painters like Chardin, who um, as early as the 1730s began to create moralizing pictures in the tradition of 17th century Dutch genre paintings by focusing carefully structured but touching scenes of everyday middle-class life. Other painters also utilized these same ideas when it came to painting royal figures, like this painting of Marie Antoinette with her children. This was drawn on the theme of a good mother, which was seen earlier in a neoclassical painting of Cornelia, so that's Roman. Um, this portrait of Marie Antoinette with her children is aimed at counteracting public perceptions of her as a selfish, extravagant, and immoral person. The queen maintains her appropriately regal pose, but her children are depicted more sympathetically. The princess leans affectionately against her mother's arm, and the son, the heir to the throne, he would never inherit, poignantly points to the empty cradle of a recently deceased sibling. The image alludes to the allegory of abundance and is intended to signify peace and prosperity for France under the reign of Marie Antoinette's husband, Louis XVI, who came to the throne in 1774 but would be executed along with the queen in 1793. So then, a very influential and important French neoclassical painter of the era was Jacques-Louis David, who dominated French art for over 20 years during the French Revolution and the subsequent reign of Napoleon. 
1774, he won the Prix de Rome, which was a paid study abroad type program that artists could use to travel to Rome to study there. And it was very, very prestigious if you could make it in. There, he studied antique sculpture and learning of the principles of neoclassicism. When he returned to Paris, he produced a series of severely plain neoclassical paintings that showed the antique virtues of stoicism, masculinity, and patriotism. So you know that modern American woke females, or cisgendered females, I should say, would despise this painting because it doesn't show enough inclusivity. <laughs> but that is... Which makes me really frustrated because just because these painters were white and male does not mean that we should disregard them because they weren't inclusive enough. There's reasons why we learn about these paintings. Perhaps the most significant of these works was the Oath of the Horatii from 1784 till 1785. It was a royal commission that David returned to Rome to paint. The work reflects the taste and values of Louis XVI, who along with his Minister of the Arts was sympathetic to the Enlightenment. The king actually believed that art should improve public morals. So the subject of the painting was inspired by the drama Horace, written by a great French playwright, which was in turn based on ancient Roman historical texts. The subjects in the painting are Roman warriors, and the Horatii stand with arms outstretched towards their father, who reaches towards them with swords on which they pledge to fight and die for Rome. The power gestures of the young man's outstretched the power gestures of the young men's outstretched hands almost pushes their father back, in contrast to the upright, tensed, muscular angularity of the men. The moving intensity of this history painting pushed French academic rules on decorum to their limit. Originally a royal commission, it quickly and ironically became an emblem of the 1789 French Revolution since its message of patriotism and sacrifice for the greater good effectively captured the mood of the leaders of the new French Republic established in 1792. So while revolution is starting in France, it's also brewing in the United States. Finally, moving to the United States, it's 1788 till 1792. The French neoclassical sculptor Houdon, who studied in Italy between 1764 and 1788, after also winning the Prix de Rome, revived the classical style with a new sense of realism. He carved busts and full-length statues of a number of important figures of his time, including Voltaire, Rousseau, Catherine the Great, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Lafayette, and Napoleon. And his studio produced a steady supply of replicas, much in demand because of the cult of great men promoted by Enlightenment thinkers to provide models of virtue and patriotism. On the basis of his bust of Ben Franklin, Houdon was commissioned by Virginia State Legislature to make a portrait of its native son, George Washington. This was to be installed in the neoclassical Virginia State Capitol building designed by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was also very influenced by European architecture and the neoclassical movements and everything, and he was bringing it back to the US. So, so we did have a foot in the race when it came to the neoclassical movement, and some of our own founders were very attuned to what was going on in Europe at the time. Houdon actually traveled to the United States to make a cast of George Washington's features and create a bust in plaster. Then he would return to Paris to execute the life-sized marble figure. So he was really serious about this. He was trying to be as detailed as possible. He was trying to make this as realistic as he could for a sculpture. 
We may wonder why our legislators didn't pick somebody American to do this sculpture, but in reality, that level of sculpting expertise hadn't quite gotten to the United States, but it would. It would move into it at some point later on. So this sculpture is different from all the ones that were generally seen in Europe. Americans did not want to see their president held to the standards of some kind of god or king. They wanted to see him represented as he actually was, a very honorable man. So this statue has embedded in it classical ideals of dignity, honor, and civic responsibility. Washington wears the uniform of a general, the rank he held in the Revolutionary War. He also rests his left hand on a Roman fasces, a bundle of 13 rods, which were representing the 13 colonies, tied together with an axe face that served as a Roman symbol of authority. And next to that, there was a sword of war and a plowshare of peace. Significantly, Houdon's Washington does not touch the sword. So now we're seeing the difference in what Americans wanted to see in their leaders and what the Europeans were seeing. Even though there was a movement of the middle class in Europe and then the revolution in France, typically European leaders, monarchs, kings, anybody in anything royal, any part of the aristocracies or parliament, and that was not a new thing. It had been like that for centuries. They believed that they were sent from God and they would justify them taking over everything in terms of divine rights, which was set forth by the theory of government that holds that a monarch receives the right to rule directly from God, not from the people. Either that or they were absolute rulers. They took over things, nobody could oppose them. It was still like a feudal system there, but that's not what it was like in America. That's why we put so much power in our people. We had a small central government and I would like to see it be kept that way. I mean, the traditional American views of small government and power in the people are even portrayed in the artworks that were popular at the time of breaking away from Europe. It showed how much people really cared about individual freedom. And hopefully people in this country will come back to that way of thinking. I don't know if they're too far gone because a lot of them sure seem like they are, but maybe there's a little hope that we'll get back to our foundation. So on that note, I'm going to wrap up today's episode of art history of the Western world and in America during the neoclassical era. I hope you guys enjoyed listening and I hope to catch you guys back for next week's episode of The Essentials with me, Maddie Flint, right here on the BMG Network.